My name is Kyle. I want to welcome you again to Uplift. So glad that you are here. We are in a series here at Uplift called Christ We Proclaim. This is from Colossians chapter 1. And this series is also being streamed on Sunday mornings in our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching us on Sunday mornings, uh, so glad that you're here. And you can say hi in the chat. The title of the series is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, and as is our custom, let's all read it out loud together. Let me hear you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Tonight we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. I want to read these verses for you. So this is Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So let's start with just a reminder. You should know this, and you should be reminded of this, that the New Testament book of Colossians is a letter. It's a handwritten letter. Letters were the primary means of communication in the Roman Empire. And this letter looks like all the other letters that were written at the time. It has the same literary structure. And this structure, this letter structure, was actually developed about 300 years before Paul ever even thought about writing a letter. So it's a familiar structure. And you need to know know that. The structure began with a greeting. We've already read the greeting. We looked at that last week. And then that greeting was always followed by a specific thanksgiving. And for most people who weren't believers, there was a thanksgiving to the gods for the benefits and the blessings of the relationship between the sender and the recipient of this letter. So these, these five verses... In our English Bible, by the way, they're one long sentence in the Greek language. These five verses are the thanksgiving part of this letter. And when you read it, we'll read it again a couple of times, the themes are real simple when you read through it. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there and see it again. The themes and the the purpose of the thanksgiving uh, section of a letter is to telegraph the themes of the whole letter. So it's, it's kind of like a synopsis before you read everything else. And so that's the point of these five verses in Colossians. So reading into these verses, it's pretty easy to figure out that these new believers in Colossians, in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, were tempted with a form of progressive Christianity, with ideas that diminished the work and the person of Jesus. And so this introduction, this thanksgiving, it sets the stage for the author's defense of the gospel. When's the last time you've written a letter? Been a while? We don't even know how to write letters anymore. Do we know how to address envelopes? I don't, I don't know if we've written, it's been a long time since I've written a letter. You know, the genius behind uh, well-crafted words is hopefully not lost in the, uh, 
era of text messaging and email. But I thought, to make sure we're on the same page, to share with you some of the more famous letters that have ever been written in the world. I actually have some pictures of them. Let's uh, look at the first one here. So this is uh, some correspondence between George Bernard Shaw, who was a famous playwright, and Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister of England during World War II. So George Bernard Shaw wrote Winston Churchill, inviting him to the opening of one of his plays. The letter was simple. It's what it says. Have reserved two tickets for my first night. Come and bring a friend, Winston, if you have one. <laughs> to, which, to which Winston Churchill replied, impossible to come the first night. We'll come to the second night if you have one. <laughs> Love it. Here's another letter. This one's kind of cool. This is from Carl Sagan. I don't know if you know who Carl Sagan is. He's a famous American astronomer. He wrote a birthday letter to Chuck Berry. You know who Chuck Berry is? American singer-songwriter, famous for songs like Maybelline and Johnny B. Good. I thought this one was great. Dear Chuck Berry, Carl writes, when they tell you that your music will live forever, you can usually be sure they're exaggerating. But Johnny B. Good is on, and I've paraphrased a little bit, is on records attached to NASA's Voyager spacecraft, which at the time of that the writing of this letter was two billion miles away from Earth and bound for the stars. These records, he wrote, Chuck Berry, will last a billion years or more. Happy 60th birthday with our admiration for the music you've given this world. Go, Johnny, go. I thought that was kind of cool. And here's one you may not have ever heard of, but this one's... Uh, this one's a big one. It's a heavy one. This one is written by someone named Vilma Grunewald. Here's a picture of Vilma. Vilma wrote this letter and gave it to Nazi guards at Auschwitz just moments before she perished in the gas chambers. She perished with one of her two sons, John. John's death was mandatory. It was called for by the Nazis at the concentration camp, but she refused to let her son die alone. So she perished with him. She wrote a letter to her husband. I actually have a picture of the letter. Uh, it's written in German, but this is the actual letter. She addressed the letter to her husband, Kurt, who was working elsewhere in Auschwitz. Miraculously, the guard found Kurt and gave him the note. But Kurt never read it. Couldn't do it. It was too heavy, too much. He passed away 20 years after this, in like 1964. And their other son, Vilma and Kurt's other son, Misa, found the letter in his father's belongings and read it for the first time. And now you can actually see this letter. This is where the picture's from, at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I want to read this to you. Tuesday, November 7th, 1944. Now remember, Vilma is writing to her husband, Kurt. She's about to die. You, my one and only, my dearest, we are locked in our block, waiting for the dark. We at first thought of hiding, which we did, but then we dropped the idea on the assumption that it would be hopeless. The infamous trucks have arrived, and we are waiting for it to begin. 
you, my one and only, my dearest, do not blame yourself in the least. It was our fate. We did what we could do. Remain in good health. And remember my words that time heals everything. If not completely, then at least in some measure. Take care of that little golden boy and don't spoil him with all your love. May you both, she concludes, may you both remain in very good health, my two dear golden ones. I will be thinking about our little Walter. It's their first son who passed away before, before the concentration camps. I'll be thinking about our little Walter. Do you remember how I once said that his passing would ease our way? And then I will be thinking only of you and Misa. Live well, she finishes. We have to get on board into eternity. Your Vilma. Is that not touching and moving and beautiful in every way possible? I mean, there's, there's some power in words, right? When they're, when they're written well, when they're crafted together, when they're put together like a puzzle that you didn't even know existed. But once they're together in the right ways, they're beautiful, they move you. This is the sense of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And it's why I love this letter. I, I absolutely love it. Because it feels this way. It's very poetic. It's very beautiful. Words are pieced together and they're given weight here. They have specific intentions they're trying to communicate. So when we read this, it's amazing, but especially when we read this verse in particular, it means something. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and it's increasing. There is a phrase in that verse that carries the weight of all of its history with it. And you know exactly what the phrase is. Bearing fruit and increasing. Let me hear you say that. Bearing fruit and increasing. We've heard this phrase before. In fact, it actually has three very clear meanings in the Old Testament. Let's look at these real briefly. The first meaning of this phrase is a call to populate the earth. Call to populate the earth. We find this phrase for the first time in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Let me read it to you. And God blessed them. He blesses Adam and Eve. And, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This, this phrase is one of the first things that God said to the very first humans created with his own breath. Adam and Eve were given an assignment to be fruitful and multiply. And then after the flood, God reiterated the same command to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Let me read this to you. This is Genesis 9, 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the first time we ever see this phrase, it's a call to populate the earth. Here's the second meaning of this phrase in the Old Testament. It's a call to build a nation. It's a call to build a nation. So later in Genesis, God's talking to the patriarchs, right? 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, when he gives them promises, he injects himself in these promises, but this phrase is part of these promises. For, so for Abraham, and he does it for all three. This is, this is pretty, pretty cool. For all three. So first he says it to Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 17, verses 19 and 20. Let's read this. God said no to, to Abraham, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for offspring after him. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, this is Abraham's other son, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. Next, God says it to Isaac. We're going to run through them. So this is Genesis chapter 28, verse 3. Then Isaac called Jacob, blessed him, and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go to Panan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. And then he says it to Jacob, the third of the patriarchs. And this is in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. We're going to start in verse 9, though. God appeared to Jacob again, verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So, this promise, right, to, first of all, to populate the earth, the second, to, to build a nation. They, they get busy. They build this nation. They live in fulfillment of this command. And this is kind of cool. You need to write this down because there's a couple of chapters that bookend the story of this population, Genesis 48 and Exodus 1. They're not on the slides. But in between those two chapters, the population of Israel explodes in slavery. They grew into a group large enough to be a nation. And they were, they were rescued. And you know their story, right? They were rescued, they were given the promised land, but then they were overthrown by Assyria and Babylon. So tons of devastation, but in spite of that, in spite of all that devastation, the Lord promised them that again, and here's the, here's the third way, that they would be fruitful and multiply. So the third way this phrase is used in the Old Testament is to restore what was lost. So there's three of them here, right? populate the earth, build a nation, restore what was lost. So we find this when God speaks through his prophet Jeremiah. Look at this. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all of the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. This, this phrase means something. It has weight, historical theological weight, but something changed. Something changed. Because when Paul uses this phrase, when he writes to the Colossians, when he, when he used the phrase that, that God used to call humanity to become creative partners with him, for, that God used with his patriarchs to build a nation, and that God used to his prophets to tell them that he's going to restore what was lost. When that phrase was used, Paul used it in Colossians, not in reference to people. This is a big deal. He used it in reference to the gospel. So now the gospel is the thing that is being fruitful and multiplying. 
not people. The imagery is pretty clear here, right? The gospel has superseded the power of humanity to multiply. It's past it. Now, it doesn't revoke responsibility of humanity, but it does supersede it. The gospel is its own multiplying force here. It's its own multiplying force. In fact, in another of Paul's letters, Paul actually describes how this multiplying force operates. And this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. These are great passages of Scripture. If you've got a real Bible, I suggest you underline these. Go back and read them. This is Paul's version of the Great Commission. Listen to this, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, he's writing to Timothy, my, my child, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, to faithful people who will be able to teach others, right? There it is. So here's this multiplying force, and I'm going I'm to, this is the equation, and here it is in ink. Look at this. One teacher plus one disciple equals one teacher plus another disciple. And then that formula continues until the Lord returns. That's it. One teacher plus one disciple equals one teacher plus another disciple. It's a repetitive formula, and it's not difficult. It's not difficult at all, but it's a formula that's withstood the test of time. And it has two clear relational implications in this multiplying force. The first, Paul says, teach what you learn. Teach what you learn. The second is, share what you live. Teach what you learn, share what you live. Now, that's pretty, pretty powerful when we think about sharing the gospel and discipling. But listen, the great conviction here of the gospel's power is what it does through you and not just what it does on its own. Now, I want you to listen to me because when we think about internalizing this multiplying force of the gospel, we're going to have to concede some territory. We're going to give up some things. You have to believe that you're not too old or too worn out or too bothered, or too unlikable, or too young, or too unlearned, or too untalented. The reason is, it's not about you. It's not about you. You are not the multiplying force here. It's not you. It's the power in you. It's the gospel. It's what, the gospel is what bears fruit and multiplies. Not you. The gospel does. The gospel's fruitfulness and multiplication by the way, it's all over these few verses, Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. It's a multiplying force that knows no walls or boundaries. So what we're going to do, I told you this, we're going to read these five verses again. And this time, now that you have a filter, I want you to see if you can, if you can notice the walls that the gospel breaks down. So here we go. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it 
and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you caught all of that, but I'm going to help you, because to me, once you kind of know the power of the gospel and its multiplying force, you notice the spatial diffusion of the gospel. You understand that boundaries are porous against the gospel's power and the reality it creates. So, got a slide for you. I want to show you this. And so they're, they're all little prepositional phrases, but you can catch this. Look at this. Paul and Timothy have heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. Faith and love come from hope. Hope is stored up in the heavens. The Colossians heard about this hope in the word of truth. You catching this? There's nothing that's stopping it. The gospel has come to the Colossians. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing all over the world. And the gospel is also bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians. Epaphras told Timothy and Paul of the Colossians' love in, in the Spirit. And every instance of the word you in these five verses, they're all plural, every one of them, which means that the effects of the gospel are not isolated to just an individual. The gospel moves around. It has fluidity. Nothing can stop it. It's in, it's among, and it's to every identifiable theological and geographical location. The gospel can't stop and it won't stop. That's what these verses say. And once we see the gospel as the power and not our talents, we begin to see the world as a canvas upon which the gospel can paint. We find and start to see new possibilities for the gospel. Once we realize that it's the gospel that has this power and not us, we can't help but speak it. We can't help but move it. It's actually similar to how good designers and innovators and inventors think. I've got a quote for you from Miri Rodriguez, and she's got a book called, i got a picture of the title. It's called Brand Storytelling. Now, this is not... A Christian book, it's not a theological book at all, it's a business book. It's a book about marketing and telling the story of the brand that you are selling. Rodriguez worked as a storyteller, that's a fancy way of saying marketer. She was a storyteller at Microsoft and she's had Forbes 500 clients that she's helped market products for. So she writes this best-selling book, it's, one, it's voted one of the greatest business books in the past few years. And she talks about in this book how brands connect to people. And that telling a worthwhile story about that brand is the connection between customers and products. Now, you don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to show you. In this book, she is mentioning a friend of hers who is a designer. And what I'm going to read to you is the quotation from her friend who's a designer. Listen to this. It's how you look at things. As a designer, you're never satisfied because you're constantly looking at ways to improve something, anything, anything you come in contact with. So your mind 
never rests. Most people will walk into a meeting room and simply find a chair to sit on. Designers walk into the same room, look at the chair, and their mind automatically begins to sketch ways in which the chair can be upgraded to provide a better experience for the user. Can it be made bigger? Can it be made softer? Can it be made more usable in any way? This is how we start to think when we realize that the power is in the gospel and not you. Once we realize that the multiplying force of the gospel, we begin to see the world the same way. We, we ask similar questions. You know what questions you start asking? We start saying, how can the gospel improve this situation? How can it improve these relationships? How can the gospel improve this event? And we stop seeing our inadequacies. We stop seeing how hard we have to work to make the gospel be heard. And we begin to see how our talent and abilities can be useful to the gospel. The gospel is the gasoline of the engine. And I want you to remember that the title of this series is called Christ We Proclaim. And to proclaim Christ, we must know that the Lord does need our voice and uses our voice. But it's the gospel that does the heavy lifting. And that's truth. Paul knew this. He knew this. The very letter of the Colossians is the result of his talent, yes, but he knew full well because he wrote it that the gospel was the multiplying force. So let me leave you with this. Concede territory in your life. Concede self-importance. And find a place to share the gospel. Whether here, in groups, in classes, where you live or where you work, I'm just asking you to join the ride and watch the multiplying force of the gospel in real time in your life.